morning. I'm Dave Dorst. I didn't introduce myself earlier. Dr. Silvernail is in Boston this weekend for his nephew's graduation. I think I saw a picture of Fenway Park. They worked that into their trip. It's good. One of my favorite musicians and songwriters of all time was Rich Mullins, who died 15 or so years ago. can't believe it's been that long. Um, great life. They're actually making a biopic movie about his life coming out soon. I'm excited about that. But he had a song I remember listening to that captured me, the, the first line. It was called, My One Thing. And he said, everybody I know needs, says they need just one thing. But what they really mean is they need one thing more. And it gets me thinking every time I listen to that. What is my one thing? What is, what is your one thing? I think it's been different things throughout my life. Survey your life right now. Search into your heart. Think about what one thing. You can't say God just because we're in church. That's cheating. The one external thing that if you had it in your life, that your life would be okay. That the one thing that if you got it, you would be set. I mean, your life would be complete or your life would be bearable. God, if you just give me this one thing. Um, I don't know. It could be different things. It could be an achievement. Some hobby or something you're good at that you're striving for. And if you reached it, then you would be certified an expert or some good in that field. Uh, maybe it's a person. A relationship, marriage, you think, oh, if I just get married, my life will start. Uh, maybe it's the right job or getting your business off the ground or being successful in business. Maybe it's, it's the right school. Maybe it's financial stability. Eventually, it could be retirement. There's any number of things that we think we need to really get our life on track. I have two examples from different periods of my life. One's a little trivial, and the other's a little trivial. I remember when I was in high school praying, and this wasn't trivial at the time, this was dead serious. God, please make me over six foot tall. <laughs> he didn't grant that, I don't know why, but... For some reason, I thought if I was just like 6'1", 6'2", I don't, I don't need to be 6'8", I don't need to be really intimidating, but 6'1", or 6'2", that's just, you know, tall enough to be much better at basketball and tennis and those things. And I think I truly thought that like people over six feet didn't really have problems that I did. I, I don't know what I thought. But that was my one thing for a while. Then my, my one thing changed. I remember in my 20s thinking, if I could just write a bunch of songs and record an album of original material, then whatever else happened in my life, at least I could point to that and see, say, I did that. I, my life is somewhat worth something. I don't, I don't know what 
I thought was. And, and I actually sort of achieved that with my brother. He and I put together an album. But the funny thing about these one things is that when you get them, they're not quite what you thought. I mean, I can't even listen to that album because I, we, I just cringe. I don't think we did it well enough. And uh, we often find that, don't we, with the things we think are going to make us happy, think we're going to get our lives on track. I don't know if you think like that. I'm, I'm sure your one thing is very different than mine, and, and maybe it's changed. And I'm, I'm not even talking about bad things here, right? They're not bad goals. These are often really good life goals. They're not sinful desires. But we attach such meaning and importance to them. There's an author, Cynthia Heimel. She wrote a book about celebrities. I love this title. Listen, if you can't live without me, why aren't you dead yet? I haven't read the book, but there's a great quote. It's about the mindset of celebrities. And she says in there, I pity celebrities. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. But the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Wow, that's the human condition, isn't it? Even when we get what we desperately wanted, it's not enough. You're still you, and you still fall short in your own head. Your life still has problems. There's always something more to be angry or insecure about. Well, today's passage, Greg's already told us a little bit, it's, it shows us a man who has one thing. That's a lot more legitimate than my one things were, and maybe yours. But, and Jesus can give him his one thing. But Jesus loves him too much to just give him that one thing. Jesus gives him what he really needs to be fulfilled. And he throws in the one thing as bonus. Let's look at that. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. 
and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this text. Thank you for Matthew's observations and his details that he gives us of your life here on earth. Open our hearts to receive what you want us to hear from this text. Help it to make sense as we see the mission you were on and the words that you spoke to those around you and how they reacted and those who believed and those who didn't believe. Give us faith to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. In case you were wondering, this is the same incident that Mark and Luke record in a much fuller way. You may have been reading it and you think, is this the one where the friends can't get into the house where Jesus is, and so they take him up on the roof, and they start digging the roof out, and then they lower the paralytic down, and Jesus then heals him. It is. It's... uh, the same account, the, the rest of the story is exactly the same. For, for whatever reason, Matthew sort of leaves out that first part about the root. And that's, that's usually the part I remember. Um, and I, I'm not sure exactly why Matthew does this. Um, one of the commentators, Frederick Bruner, suggested this. Matthew's interest is much more in what Jesus does than in what eager believers do. Uh, Matthew drops all the colorful expressions of faith. He simply points to faith's presence. I mean, he does mention that the friends had faith. And then he spotlights Christ. So the spotlight is on Jesus. This, uh, This story is not about the friends or the paralyzed man. Primarily, it's about Jesus and how he acts. And certainly it's focused there, no doubt, but there's a great point, I think, to be made up front about something that Jesus commends. Look again at verse 2. Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith, right? He's He's not talking about the paralyzed man. He's talking about the friends and their efforts to come. Bring the man. And Jesus acts, I think, based on that faith. And the first thing that we can get from this passage is that God gives you great opportunities to bring your friends to Jesus. This is probably usually the conclusion of a sermon like this. Pack that on, go go in your friends, but well, let's throw this up, up front. And then like Matthew, we can focus on Jesus after that. But I think this is a good, valid application we can take here. I mean, this paralyzed man has no way to get to Jesus on his own. Right? His friends have to take him. They knew that Jesus was special. They'd heard the buzz around the region. This guy is doing unbelievable things. And they get their hopes up that maybe, oh yeah, they could, they could, he, he, he could do something for our friend. Let's take him. And when you factor in these other gospel accounts, they really had to get through these obstacles, right? The crowd, the roof. 
I'm sure if your friend was in an accident and you were there, you would take that person to the ER. Right? If your friend needed food and couldn't get out, you would take them to the grocery store. And yet we know we all have friends, neighbors, co-workers who are spiritually dead, spiritually in need. And they need to be taken to Jesus. They're not going to find Him on their own. But we can't physically take them to Jesus. So what do I mean? How can we do this? Well, number one, I think we can take them to Jesus in our conversations. Right? We can introduce them to Jesus, uh, tell of all His wonderful deeds, to use the language of the Psalms, to tell how He's worked in our lives, to tell what the Scriptures bear about Him. Look for those openings in your conversations. Number two, we can take them to Jesus in our prayer lives. They don't even have to know about it. right? I think the most powerful part of evangelism, of witnessing, is bringing your friend to the Holy Spirit and saying, God, change this person's heart. They need you. You can bring your friends to Jesus in your prayers. And that is powerful and effective. And number three, take them to Jesus by bringing them here among God's people. Not everybody's going to want to come to church. But if they hear, they come and hear the gospel and they see people taking seriously the commands to worship, to repent, to love God, they might find Jesus through that. Try those things. Do those things. Be in tune for great opportunities. If you are getting nowhere with your friend and they're not listening and they'd be up for it, we'd love for you to bring them by the church office. Call one of the pastors. Uh, we'd love to talk to somebody who's sincerely questioning. Um, we had a, I, I know a few years back, I had a college student who had gone through my youth ministry. She called me a little out of the blue and said that she had stayed in touch with one of her high school friends who really needed somebody to talk to. There were uh, depression, addiction, uh, behavior issues, and she had spent some time talking to him, and, and he was just um, desperate for some answers, but he was rejecting hers, and she was getting nowhere, and he was a pretty strident atheist, and she didn't know how to answer all. And she said, Dave, can you just talk to him? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so we set it up. He came to my office, and we talked for a few hours. Uh, we became Facebook friends and sent messages back and forth. I have no idea if something happened or not. He, maybe I comforted him in my words. I, I know he didn't say, ah, oh, it makes total sense, and repent right there. But I'm hoping the Lord used that. But even if nothing happened, this college student was faithful to bring her friend. She could have just easily said, okay, well, he'll figure it out on his own. I don't care. I'm not going to see this guy. She cared enough to stay after him and bring him to Jesus, to talk to him about Jesus, try to connect him. And many of you are doing that. I've heard so many stories of people connecting with their, their co-workers, family members. I mean, family members are hard, aren't they? Relatives. But we can bring them to Jesus and He will heal them. Give them that, that opportunity. 
Well, after the, back to the text, after the paralytic's friends bring him into Jesus' presence, we see two miracles. And one of them is the miracle they were looking for, right? What they were expecting, the miracle of physical healing. Let's read verses 5 through 7. For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. Now, when Jesus says, which is easier, rise and walk or your sins are forgiven, I hope you don't take that at face value. They're they're both pretty easy to say. I think what he's saying is, which one, when I say it, can can it be proved? Right? It's way easier for me to say his sins are forgiven because you can't tell. You can't look inside this guy and find out if his sins have been truly wiped away. So I can say that. That's easy for me to say, right? But for me to say, rise and walk, well, you're going to know immediately if that worked or not. Right? That's going to be pretty verifiable in about five seconds here. But really, when Jesus asks which is easier, the short answer is, well, they're both impossible if he's not God. If he's not God, he can't forgive sins, and he can't heal a paralyzed man with just a word. Right? But Jesus does heal the man, and he says that it's in order that those looking on would know that he's been given authority to forgive sins. In other words, he's saying, I'll prove this thing that you can't see by showing you the thing that you can see. And this is how Jesus works throughout His ministry. right? He uses these healings, these miracles, things that open people's eyes, that people were amazed at, to confirm His divinity and to show that He had spiritual power. I can imagine Him Somewhat saying, if you like what I'm doing, healing these bodies, you should see what I can do for a soul. Right? But of course, the physical healing came second. I've put them out of order a little bit for a reason. But the first miracle is the, the miracle of forgiven sin. Let's, let's go back to verse 2, the second part. Jesus said, Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, Frederick Bruner, again, the man I quoted earlier, but said this, people cannot just go around telling other people that God holds nothing against them. To say this presupposes the most intimate possible knowledge of the real mind of God. Yet Jesus quietly and authoritatively tells another human being how he stands with God and how God has ruled concerning him. This is unprecedented in Jesus' ministry until now. We haven't seen this yet. And somewhat, he's given this man what he hasn't asked for. 
right? If you ever have the choice between being physically healed and spiritually healed, please take the spiritual healing. If we saw things as they truly were in the perspective of eternity, we would value Jesus' healing of our souls that allow us to spend eternity in heaven much more than we would value healthy bodies for the brief span of this life. I mean, if this guy is healed, which he is, even if he becomes a world-class athlete, will that guarantee that he has a great life? No. That he would never be unhappy? No. And does it guarantee anything after this life? Of course not. Back to the introduction, this is his one thing. If he just got this, I'm sure in his mind he thought, then I could start life. And Jesus does give it to him, right? We've seen that. But Jesus says, even more important is that your sins are forgiven. You are spiritually healed. Now, what I'm not saying, please don't hear that I'm saying it's wrong to pray for health, for healing. Absolutely not. I think those are great things. And it's very easy for me to say these things uh, with a relatively healthy body. Um, we have a lot of people struggling with a lot of different illnesses and ailments. But it's the perspective that our spiritual health is greater than our physical health. Second Corinthians 5, Paul talks about the fact that our earthly bodies the tents, we are groaning in them. And we long for our heavenly dwellings. And Jesus comes to us just like He came to the paralyzed man. And He says, I'm going to give you what you really need, which is so much more crucial than what you think you want. Having your sins forgiven is your one thing. Now, I want to return again to the question that Jesus asks of which is harder to say, your sins are forgiven or rise or walk? Because I kind of answered that in the sense that he's gonna, he can verifiably show one of them. But I think there's a deeper way we can understand this. When Jesus says, rise and walk, he's healing a man that he had created. Right? It's actually not very hard for God to fix broken things. We acknowledge that God created the entire universe in six days. Do you think it's hard for Him to fix a human body with a word? That's not a problem. I think that's a good way to see this. This is not hard for Jesus to do. Healing, boom. But for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, that's something that not even God can just fix with a word. God cannot just overlook sin and decide that someone can be let off the hook. As soon as He does, He ceases to be a good judge. I mean, what would we think of a judge who had a convicted murderer, rapist, arsonist, 
throw everything on there. Convicted, guilty as charged, and just decides, you know what, I'm feeling in a good mood today. You don't have to, you don't have to serve that sentence. Don't worry about it. You're free. That is not a good judge. We need justice done. And we know God is the perfect judge and that every sin a person commits, our record of sin, blood must be shed for justice to be done. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system was designed to drive that deep into Israel's understanding. They had to think, when I sin, blood must be shed to atone for that sin that got through to them. And that's as true today as it ever was. When we sin, God's justice demands someone's death, someone's blood for that sin. Your sins will be paid for when you die. Your death will satisfy God's justice, but you will be eternally separated from Him unless unless you hear the wonderful good news that Jesus will be that sacrifice of death and blood that will pay for your sins. His death will substitute for yours. So when Jesus asks if saying your sins is forgiven is easy, it may have been easy to say, but it was the hardest thing that he had to do. Right? He's telling us, this is where I'm headed. We, we keep seeing these glimpses in Matthew pointing us ahead to the cross. That his perfect obedience in life and his painful death on the cross is going to achieve forgiven sins for those who call on his name. Dan Doriani summarizes this. He says, On this day, Jesus forgave sins by a word. Sometime later, he earned the right to say that word by going to the cross for the sin of all who believed in him. His work 2,000 years ago allows him to say to the paralytic and to all who believe, Your sins are forgiven. And we see even in this short passage, these short eight verses, the two reactions that we have to Jesus. The scribes first react, verse 3. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Why do they say that? They're essentially saying, I don't believe what he just said, and we can't see it. But it doesn't fit into my system, my religious system. My worldview can't fit Jesus. So I'm going to reject that. Is that you? When you hear me say that God's justice demands payment, death, and Jesus had paid for it, does that fit your religious worldview? Or do you reject that out of hand? Notice what Jesus says to him. You're thinking evil in your hearts because you don't believe. These are men that knew the Scriptures 
and they missed that they pointed to him. The second reaction is the crowd's reaction. We don't know how the paralyzed man reacted. He just sort of gets up and goes home. But the crowds were told they saw it. Verse 8, crowds saw it. They were afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, I'm not sure about the word afraid because other translations say they marveled and glorified God. So it's some uh, idea of astonishment, uh, healthy fear mixed with awe that the crowds, wow. I mean, we've never seen that. Modern medicine and technology has done a lot, but I've never seen someone just point to a paralyzed person and they get up. And it doesn't seem like the scribes are convinced then. Matthew doesn't mention them, but the crowds marvel and they believe. And they thank God. They start worshiping God. Now, Matthew doesn't quote the crowd, but Mark and Luke do. And what they say is, the crowds proclaim, we never saw anything like this. And Luke says, we have seen extraordinary things today. As we follow Jesus, as we read who He is in Matthew, we see extraordinary things What is our reaction? Disbelief, digging in? Or do we marvel and worship God for what He's revealed? I want to close with a story from a book called Letters from a Skeptic. And it's written by a father and son who the, the son, Gregory Boyd, is a professor of apologetics and a pastor, and the, the author, he really wrote, compiled all these letters, but his dad, Ed, is, was an atheist, and so they wrote letters back and forth, and it's really fascinating because Ed, the dad, brings up pretty much every common atheist objection, and Greg just patiently goes through them one by one and says, all right, I see your objection, but have you thought about this? And he reframes it, and he... he uh, tells his dad. He really presents the faith to him. His dad can't understand why his otherwise intelligent son would believe all this. But, spoiler alert, by the end, uh, he does come to faith in Christ. And the final chapter, the tribute from Greg to his dad. I'm going to read it to you. The most profound change in dad's post-conversion life was his general disposition. The pre-Christian Ed Boyd was usually contentious and ill-tempered. More often than not, he was angry about something and very vocal about it. But soon after his surrender to Christ, Ed Boyd acquired a profound peace, a pervasive sweetness, and most remarkably, an amazing sense of gratitude I never saw prior to his conversion. What made his transformation more remarkable was that soon after he committed his life to Christ, my father was given more reasons to complain than he had ever dreamed. One year after his conversion, my father suffered the first of several debilitating strokes. Over the years, he lost most of his physical abilities and verbal skills. Eventually, this once fiercely independent man was unable to care for himself and was confined to a wheelchair. 
By the age of 80, he was almost completely blind and deaf. The pre-Christian Ed Boyd would have been positively miserable. Yet the Christian Ed Boyd rarely complained. And while it seems odd, the worse things got from my father, the more grateful he became. Before his final stroke left him in a coma, I was with my father when he began to weep for no apparent reason. Shouting into his hearing aid, I requested an explanation for his tears. His response floored me. Because I feel so blessed by God just to be here. I embraced him tightly for a long moment as we both wept. As a witness to the unfathomable love and power of God, this man was definitely not the same father I grew up with. Two weeks later, he fell into a coma from a massive stroke that caused his brain to hemorrhage. He passed away three weeks later. One of my greatest joys is knowing my dad's dreams of heaven have now come true. I envision him in the presence of Christ, dancing with absolute abandon and shouting for joy at the full realization of God's love for him. Ed Boyd found out that his spiritual condition, having his sins forgiven and his place in heaven secured through Jesus, was way more important than his temporary physical condition. Do we know that, church? Do we believe that? Can we see even the the marvels of what Jesus can do in raising the dead, in, in healing, in making miracles, that what He does on our hearts is the important work of salvation and it's what we truly, truly need. And can we praise Him for that? Take a moment to pray silently and then I'll close us in prayer. Lord God, thank You for this text again. Thank you for the Gospels that give us Jesus' life. The stories of what he did. How he had compassion on the crowds. And many dismiss Jesus as a good moral teacher. They dismiss him as a wonder worker. They want to keep some of his wise sayings, but reject him as God. May we never do that. May we see in all of these accounts as we go through the book of Matthew, the power of God in the Son of God, who was fully God, even while being fully man. And even as he demonstrated some amazing abilities to heal, do miracles, his true mission was to seek and to save the lost. Then and now. And his saving came through his death. Even as he proclaimed 
forgiveness. And that pointed ahead that forgiveness was granted when you, the Father, placed all the sins of believers on Him. And He died in our place. The perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute for us. And He still says, your sins are forgiven today. We know that when He draws us to Himself and we repent of our sins, that we are forgiven. We have no promise that our physical bodies will be healed, although often you do. But often you don't. But forgiveness of sins is sure when we call out, when we call on the name of Jesus. Lord, give us that assurance, give us that perspective that having our sinful record wiped clean and given eternity with you is the most important thing in this life. Thank you for that assurance, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.